Stephen Strange learned to wield the magical forces which shape our lives, and yet Stephen Strange did not turn his back on reality. For all that he learned, he still chose to live in the material world. He walks among us this very day, and no one realizes the world's greatest sorcerer is in their midst. My name is Conrad, along with my co-host Drew. Welcome to the 28th episode of Stranger by the Dozen, the weekly podcast where we recap the adventures of Dr. Stephen Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, 12 issues at a time. How's it going this week, Drew? The 8th episode will be noted for the fact that I'm no longer coughing out my lungs. Hooray! <laughs> uh, you can find the show on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, or any fine podcast app. You can contact the podcast at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com, on Twitter at strangerbythe12, or on Facebook or Instagram by searching for Stranger by the Dozen, or on our new podcast network site, cradaline.com. Ooh, so fancy. It's pretty good, man. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, things are going pretty good with the Doctor Strange stuff. Very exciting episodes. You know, we just finished the big. Um, we, we we both finished our big storyline with the Overmind with the Defenders last issue or last episode, I should say. And we're in the midst of um, and and Doctor Strange is finally like gotten over his um lost relationship with Clea, who's gone to the Dark Dimension to lead the rebellion against Dormammu. So, it's sort of an in-between time in Doctor Strange at the moment. It's a good time for some team-ups. It's a good time to start some new adventures that may or may not involve vampires. FYI, Drew. Yes. It involves vampires. Okay. (laughs) I am shocked and agog. It's bad, man. No, actually, it's super awesome. Um, let's go right away to Marvel 2 and 1, number 1991, from September 1982. In the shadow of the Sphinx. Tom DeFalco script, Ron Wilson pencils, John D'Agostino inks, Diana Albers letters, George Russo's colors, Mark Grunwald editor, Jim Shooter, Pharaoh. So, you'll remember that Marvel 2 and 1 is the monthly team-up comic. That stars The Thing instead of uh, Spider-Man. That's a Marvel team-up. Right. Yes. Yes. So, (laughs) our story begins in the deserts of Egypt, where a bunch of archaeologists have been digging for a couple months in hopes of discovering, you know, some more sweet history things. Right. As you do in Egypt when you're digging things up. Of course. They find a a, uh, petrified form, and they all freak out. But before we can figure out what it is, we jump the other side of the world. Where but, da- oh, go ahead. But but is it Batman? It's not. Oh. <laughs> I should say the cover of this issue has Ben Grimm, the Thing, tied to a wall by metal by a uh, you know metal chains and stuff, and there's a silhouette cast over him that looks extremely Batmany, and the Thing is saying, "Oh no, not you! It can't be you." I mean, it, it really can't. You're you're not in this universe. Batman could be the DC in the Marvel universe if he wanted to. No, but no, we're not going to go down this road. Let let's let's move on. Batman can do anything, bro. No, no. <laughs> so argument. Nope. Yeah. So Doctor Strange is sort of doing his Doctor Strange thing. He's walking around the Sanctum Sanctorum. He goes to the uh, Cauldron of the Cosmos to see what's going on in the world. 
and by the hoary host of Hogoth, what wonderment is this? He sees his old buddy, the Thing, Ben Grimm, and a uh, some, somehow fate conspiring to lure him to Egypt. And it could be weird, but he's got to do something about it. Meanwhile, again, at the Baxter Building in New York City, uh, Ben Grimm, the Thing, is doing one-handed uh, like exercises. Now he's doing like one one one-handed sitting bench presses with a huge piece of super of a uh, ultra heavy futuristic weightlifting equipment <laughs> while reading alternate universe versions of um, the Mac Bolin Executioner series of, of of War Against the Mafia novels that I know from uh, po- from the, a podcast I'm a fan of called uh, I don't even own a television. <laughs> but Ben Grimm's working out. He's uh, read about ma- about mafia dudes. He, when... He's working out his mind and his body. Yes, <laughs> I don't. That seems like a, a pretty a pretty big stretch for those books. But anyhow, uh, Doctor Strange comes flying in, ghost form, freaking hey out. Oh, yeah. reading is good reading. All right. Okay. Uh, Doctor Strange comes flying in. He freaks out Ben Grimm, who loses control of the uh, crazy big weightlifting thing. And it's then like, you're in trouble. It may be Egypt-based, or whatever. Wouldn't um, this feel like one of those good times where it's like, yo, there's trouble going down in Egypt. Maybe you shouldn't go there. I mean, he doesn't know, but, but you know, he sort of, Dr. Trey offers to help with whatever the Egypt problem may be. But Ben Grimm's like, no, I'm fine. Uh, you know, thanks for the offer, but I'm a thing. I do things on my own. Thing doing things. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, after working out, Ben Grimm wanders the hall of the Baxter building, comes upon Reed Richards, who's using his super-sized, stretchy Mr. Fantastic arms to look at a giant printout of Egypt, which is apparently just a white picture with a whole bunch of pictures of, uh, or a white sheet of paper with a whole bunch of pictures of pyramids on it. And he's like, hey, this one pyramid I haven't seen before. I want to watch up with that. Oh, well. Um, that, that seems kind of like a big deal. Just throwing that out there, you know, uh, d- overnight. He doesn't think so, but, uh, the, but Ben Grimm does. He gets aboard a Fantastic Four, uh, pogo plane and decides to investigate. He quickly flies to Egypt and sort of hangs out. Um, everyone sort of is like, you know, they're only moderately bothered by a big orange rock man walking among them. And eventually, but eventually word comes to the, the archaeologist guys saying, like, hey, there's a big orange guy, what's going on? And Professor Hempstead, who's the head of the um, archaeological expedition that we saw earlier um, this episode, uh, comes out to warn the thing before he can. They're attacked by uh, city guards and stuff. And eventually the thing is led to the dig site of this mysterious new pyramid. Once inside, when he comes to and is, you know, finds himself uh, locked in chains and stuff. He's shocked to see who he's staring down. It's Bat- the Sphinx! Oh, it's not Batman. All right. No, but the Sphinx is a very batman head with, like, the ears coming off the top and stuff. Yeah. 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 At this point, we get a ton of a ton of backstory that I'm surprised isn't... There's no footnotes in it, which is kind of weird, because I know these are all previous Doctor Strange, uh, or not Doctor Strange, but, like, Fantastic Four and Team Up and other thing, um, like, recaps and stuff. Basically, uh, there was this guy who is a Sphinx. He was the wizard for the, the great pharaoh, for, for, for the pharaoh for the great Ramses in ancient Egypt. He found a mystic stone in the desert, 
put it on his forehead. He became immortal and a powerful wizard and stuff. Eventually fighting the Fantastic Four and finally showing down with Galacticus. Galactus? Galactus, yes. Galactus, yeah. <laughs> he showed down with him. He lost, and Galactus pulled the stone out of his head, depowering him, and then he, he crushed it in his hand, turning it into like powder and stuff. And then sent him, banished him back in time, which is pretty cool. That's a hell of a thing to do to a guy. Yeah, but then when he was banished back in time, he was actually banished back. He didn't replace his former self, so there was two of them. And so then the previous, he basically caused a time paradox and teamed up with the previous him. And the two of them conspired to do cross-time shenanigans, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, the, if, oh, go ahead. I know my time paradox is right, and if I've seen enough episodes of Futurama... One of them should die. Well, yeah, okay. So, here's the deal. Yeah. So, the two of them being brilliant wizards slash scientists, um, they took one version of the stone, one of them used it to banish, to, uh, to have the other one be frozen inside the pyramid until basically today, 1982, um, uh, um, Earth, right. while the other one continued through the future and did all the stuff we've seen previously. Okay. So, he's caught in a time loop, essentially. Or he's caught himself in a time loop, basically. Uh, Alright. But now he's here, and he, and they, because he was sort of used, he, he's used his future knowledge and stuff to build a device that will be able to recover the stone after it was crushed to powder by Galactus. It'll scour the sands and recover all the gem pieces and rebuild the gem. Right. And that's basically, yeah, and, and, and that's the plan for the bad guy. It's good. All right. So, uh, the Sphinx gets his plan in motion, as he does. Uh, ben Grimm sort of gets loose, and there's a big uh, Sphinx-Ben Grimm fight, which is always nice. A lot of uh, super-powered punching in the sands of Egypt. Yeah. Culminating with, as the machine almost finishes creating the gem, that, uh, uh, Ben Grimm grabs his, uh, plane, his pogo plane, and he smashes it right into the... Um, into the machine. Nice. The, the machine's destroyed, and the gems only rebuilt about um, like three, like two thirds of the way or so. I want to say two thirds to three quarters of the way done. And while the Sphinx is pissed about this, he uh, it's like three quarters of the stone is better than nothing. He jams the stone in his head, flies into his pyramid. The pyramid takes off and flies off into the sunset, and that's the end of the issue. Um, um, yeah, it's pretty good. Doctor Strange, or not Doctor Strange, Ben Grimm action, and he punches the hell out of that guy. And it reestablishes the Sphinx as a bad guy in Marvel continuity, which is always nice. Sure, okay. Yeah, man, it sucks when, you're best, when some of your best bad guys get tossed into the past by Galactus, you know? That guy's really messing up with our opportunities. <laughs> Okay, I, that that seems entirely legit. Yeah, sure. Sorry, I have a I have a I have a soft spot in my heart for um for the Sphinx because one the first big set of comics I bought was this series of Spider-Man annuals one summer where the big bad guy uh, where Spider-Man teamed up with the New Warriors and they fought a bunch of bad guys ending up fighting uh the, with, with the Sphinx being the uh, eventual big bad guy. Oh, okay. So I got a I got a sentimental attachment to the character. <laughs> All right, that's I, I can't fault you for that. I really can't. That's right, you can't. That's right, I can't. <laughs> so let's go to a Marvel team up 
annual number five from November 1982. It's called Serpent Rising, with Mark Gruenwald doing the script, plot, and breakdowns, Jim Mooney embellishment, Diana Albers letters, Bob Sharon colors, Tom DeFalco editor, Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. So we start in a government research facility called Project Pegasus as security klaxons wail and the head of security, the uh, supervillain, the superhero Quasar goes to investigate. Um, So Quasar is like this dude. At this point, we can just think of him as sort of a generic superhero guy. He's got band. He's got magic bands. The bands come from Uranus. We call them Urian bands. But... <laughs> but I know what what Urian means, and that means that they come from the planet Uranus. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. Oh. oh. Anyhow, he follows the uh, the security klaxons to a secure area, and behind a locked door, he finds that the serpent crown, a magical artifact entrusted to the center by Ben Grimm, is missing. Uh, he wonders how the crown could have been stolen. But as he does, he's attacked by guards from the facility. Eventually, he is overwhelmed, and the serpent crown itself is placed upon his head, subduing him. I just want to point out uh, like what this serpent crown looks like. It's basically a snake hat. Yeah, it's a hat made out of a bunch of snake heads. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a snake hat. Actually, uh, last episode, Alternate Reality President Nelson Rockefeller also wore the, uh, the serpent crown, which I think is kind of funny. Interesting. But that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, that night, back at the Baxter building, last episode, uh, the Thing prepares for a night in when a phone call, when he receives a phone call which projects out of the receiver a mysterious image of Quasar. Worried, he calls Quasar to see if, all, if everything's all right, and Quasar's like, yes, everything's fine. But that's just suspicious. Yeah, so, like, I should be wearing a snake hat right now and being under the power of the snake hat. Something. So... Suspicious Ben Grimm boards another pogo plane and heads out for Project Pegasus. I mean, okay, I get it that, you know, a, a snake hat isn't nearly as impressive as a serpent crown, but I'm just calling it like I sees it. That's fair enough. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a hat with snakes on it. Yeah, it's a snake. I mean, a crown's just a hat with gold with uh, golden jewels on it. Like, that's a fact. A crown uh, kind of like has like weird spires and stuff like that and kind of like this open design and you should you should go up to some monarch and say you like their gold hat. That's what I'm saying. Oh yeah, I totally plan on doing that the next time I'm in a country with a monarchy. I mean, there could be a monarch visiting America, and you could say it to them then. That's gonna I'm end just, well for me. I'm putting it out there. That's, that's really gonna end well for me. <laughs> yeah. So meanwhile, in New York, in New York City, uh, Spider-Man is apprehending some thieves that are stealing video game cartridges because it's 1982, <laughs> and. Uh, he finds himself distracted, feeling ill, and hallucinating giant ghostly snakes everywhere. Worried that he... Oh, go ahead. I just want to point out that it, since it is 1982, those video game cartridges should be worth practically nothing. Aw, oh, come on. Their arms are stuffed with them. They got arms stuffed full of video game cartridges. 1982 is the height of the video game crash. Just saying. <sighs> You're so pessimistic. <laughs> so... Worried that he's sick, possessed, or both, Spider-Man heads to the one physician that can handle either problem, Dr. Stephen Strange. Aha! Yeah. Strange observes Spider-Man and sees that his astral self is being attacked by a demonic spirit serpent. Strange uses the Eye of Agamotto to track, to track the source of the spirit 
and the two head off there to Project Pegasus. At the same time, uh, the Scarlet Witch is watching a movie with a vision, a movie where a man with a fedora doesn't like snakes. I think we all know what we're talking about. I think I understand what movie this is. But she too sees ghost snakes come out of the screen, and so she also heads off to the research center because she knows that the serpent crown is being held there as well. And sort of says like, hey, if I'm not back in like a day, call the Defenders. Or the Avengers, I should say. So me, so... <laughs> Doctor Strange and Spider-Man are heading out to, the, uh, to Project Pegasus. To do so, they have to rent a car, which is pretty funny, I think. <laughs> like they walk into the her- into the uh, Mertz rent a car, get like a mid-sized sedan, and drive out. And there's just a picture of Doctor Strange in the passenger seat and Spider-Man in full costume, like driving with his you know you know hands of ten and two and stuff. That I find to be pretty hilarious. No, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Along the way, uh, Doctor Strange's astral form goes off and travels through time and space to learn the story of the Serpent Crown. Like, he literally, like, flies out of the car, comes back a couple minutes later, and is like, oh, no, I just spent, like, two years uh, traveling through time and learning the history of the Serpent Crown. And he kind of gives it through a, a multi-page set of flashbacks um, that sort of start with the history of the Serpent Crown. It starts back in the age of Cole, which we actually had a crossover with in a previous Marvel team-up, with Doctor Strange sending Spider-Man back in time to fight, or to team up with Cole, like, way back in prehistoric Hyborian age kind of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it sort of has moved through and had some adventure, been part of some adventures with Namor and the Avengers and eventually ending up with the Thing and uh, Scarlet Witch. As the pair approach the Project Pegasus, Ben Grimm is already climbing up the side of the mountain it sits upon. Uh, He eventually punches his way into the underground tunnels where he is confronted by Quasar who is now wearing the serpent crown with scaly, snake-like skin. So he has snake skin because he's wearing the snake hat. Got it. Yeah, he's infected by its snaky goodness. Or evilness, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Uh, The thing is quickly subdued by Quasar's quantum abilities. Arriving at Project Pegasus um, as well, Doctor Strange enters his astral form to explore the facility as Spider-Man keeps guard of his physical form. But then Spider-Man is attacked by... uh, by Project Security Guards, and Doctor Strange's body is stolen in the confusion. At this point, Scarlet Witch arrives in the scene, and she and Spider-Man enter the facility via manhole cover, the old-fashioned way. They kind of make their way to the main facility of, of uh, Project Pegasus, where Scarlet Witch and Spider-Man find the thing and Doctor Strange captured, and dozens of security guards, scientists, Quasar, and the acting director of the project, Myron Milburn, all wearing serpent crowns. Snake hats. They're all wearing snake hats. So apparently, Pegasus is using co- these cosmic cannons to troll the mu- to troll the, mul- the multiverse for serpent crowns and bring them all to the research center. Once 777 crowns are acquired, the evil serpent god Set will be resurrected. That's a very specific number of snake hats. It's the number of Set, bro. <laughs> so Quasar attacks Spider-Man and Scarlet Witch He tries to put crowns on them Doctor Strange's astral form appears And warning Scarlet Witch Because only she can see the astral form To cover Spider-Man's escape As only he can save them all Spider-Man makes good his escape And Scarlet Witch is crowned Though Doctor Strange shields her from the crown's effects She's just sort of unconscious 
and he mentions that he's done the same for himself and the thing. Oh, they took off a weird like head thing to put the the snake hat on. Although it's on in one panel and it's off on the next. It kind of varies. Uh, weird. Mm. Look, the Scarlet Witch's head thing is very weird. All right, I don't even know what it is. Is it like a a hairband or something? It's like a weird face mask thing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> All, all I know is that in, like, one panel, she's wearing the snake hat, and then the next panel, she is not. Mm, it's true. Yeah. So the, the cultists chant and sway as the serpent crowns are gathered in the middle of the facility, and in a glowing halo, we form into a gigantic version of the serpent crown. So, a really big snake hat. Got it. I think at this point, it's like a snake tank, honestly. Eh, I guess. <laughs> at this point, Doctor Strange revives the unconscious thing who wakes up and falls into the giant crown which suddenly animates, and one of the serpent heads eats Ben Grimm whole. So Ben Grimm has been eaten by a snake hat. Got it. Yes. Well, by one of the snake heads of the, of the serpent crown. Yes. All right. Meanwhile, Spider-Man sort of diehard his way through the ventilation shafts of this facility. He's still wearing but, shoes, though. He's wearing his Spider-Man shoes? Yeah. What? It's diehard. Well, I mean, to be fair, he's doing this before diehard actually existed. All right, that's fine. All right, all right. Cool. I'm just saying when one guy, I just say when one guy's going through a facility, he's dieharding his way through. Okay. You don't actually have to be shoeless after trying to re, after unsuccessfully trying to reconnect with your divorced wife. That's not a, a, a full requirement, if you ask me. I don't know. That seems like you know, kind of necessary. In that. <laughs> Could you yes and be once true? Anyhow. <laughs> yes and there. <laughs> Um, so, eventually Spider-Man finds a door marked Danger Cosmic Cube. Entering, he finds that the cube is missing, but he remembers that, in fact, it is in back in the main room, and it's powering those cosmic cannons, trawling the multiverse for serpent crowns. As Spider-Man runs back to the main area, Doctor Strange and Scarlet Witch are fighting the, the giant serpent crown, and Scarlet Witch is swallowed by another one of the serpent heads. Spider-Man swings and grabs the cube, uh, which is currently suspended from the ceiling, and is promptly also eaten by one of the snakes. All seems lost until suddenly, as the ritual to turn the giant uh, snake cat into the incarnated god of Set, the monster explodes with a mighty BAWAM, leaving Spider-Man, the Thing, and Scarlet Witch standing in the remains of the destroyed crown. Just basically a giant pile of snakes. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Using the cosmic cube and the combined wills of all three heroes, Doctor Strange purges the remains of the mystic presence of Set from their reality. And this causes the formerly possessed people to return to normal, and all seems well, except for Spider-Man's costume, which has been destroyed when he was eaten by the Serpent Crown. I mean, it's it's not a Spider-Man story like, until some of his costume is destroyed. That's definitely what he seems to say, because he's like, this always happens. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to our last, or no, our second-to-last big team-up, I suppose, with Marvel team-up number 125 from January 1983. This one's uh, called Crossfire. It's a Duffy, Gamble, Green, Rosen, Sharon, DeFalco, Shooter, Production. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so, this one's pretty quick. Uh, a movie is being shot. There's a witch lady who's saying magic stuff. And as movie-making guys sort of chat about it off-camera, one guy asks the other, Hey, where'd you, uh, 
Like that witch lady's lines sound pretty authentic with the magic stuff. Where'd you get the magic words for it? And he's like, oh, I got them from this obviously evil book that I found. <laughs> he's basically used a movie to go full evil dead. Like, oh, I found this Necronomicon. Let's just start reading, reading out loud from it. What, what could go wrong? Just about to say evil dead. It's very there. Yeah. And you know what could go wrong, Drew? What could go wrong? You could actually summon a big, crazy green monster that's on fire and eats everybody. How unexpected when you're using some ancient evil book. It's true. Yeah. Or, well, it doesn't actually eat anybody. It just sort of sprays fire at them and then starts running amok. As it does so, the first superhero on the scene is Scarlet Witch, who is doing some grocery shopping. She immobilizes the beast and runs to the Sanctum Sanctorum for help. Doctor Strange uh, zaps her into her costume, and then here's the situation. That's they a run, by the way. I mean, he just appreciates everybody to be in there. You know, he wears his costume 24 hours a day and appreciates everybody else wearing their costume when they um, do superhero stuff, I guess. I don't know. Sure. It's still a little weird to basically say, you're in your costume now, poof. It's like, I don't know. It just seems a little forced. That's all. You know, yeah. Magic time. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but so they run out to confront the monster. Strange casts a spell on it, which allows it to talk, and it turns out the monster doesn't even want to be on Earth. That was summoned by mistake. Uh, Doctor Strange sends the monster home, and I think it's kind of nice how thankful the monster is. It's like, you guys are so nice and helpful. Thank you for letting me get home. Which I think is kind of funny, I guess. I mean, I, I, I can understand that. He's, like, upset because he doesn't want to be here. He just wants to go home, man. Yeah, man, I didn't want to be summoned to Earth either. I had to make the best of it because there's no real Doctor Strange's. I mean, I've had nights like that where it's like, I don't even want to be here. I just want to go home. And if exactly. Dr. Strange said, yeah, you can go home now, I'm like, I'd, I'd be pretty cool with that. That'd be all right. <laughs> we definitely stop rampaging after that. Exactly. So we get a, uh, we learn a good lesson about not judging rampaging giant green fire monsters by their covers. And Scarlet Witch heads out, making flowers bloom all around the uh, same sanctuary. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is this one of those lessons where we learn that who is the real monster? Is it the monster or is it humanity? And it's actually humanity? Is it one of those lessons? Maybe. I feel like this monster was a monster. It just wasn't like an evil one. Alright. Like, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different varieties of monsters that in, in the Marvel Universe, right? Yeah, that's true. I guess it's more of a, you know, don't jump to conclusions kind of thing. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Right. Although, in, in everyone else's defense, it's a pretty reasonable conclusion to jump to when um, when the monster's a big, evil-looking thing that's crashing through buildings and setting things on fire. You know, yeah. that's the counterpoint. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm just, you know, putting it out there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so let's go to uh, cri- to uh, our next comic, uh, Christar 3, Christar number 3, from September 1983, in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Doctor Strange. Joe Duffy, script and plot. Ron Friends, breakdowns. Danny Bolandi finishes. Rick Parker, letters. Andy uh, y- y- Yankas, colors. Ralph Macchio, editor. Jim Shooter, editor and chief. Drew, are you familiar with Christar? I am not at all familiar with Christar. I was just about to ask. Uh-uh. So this is the uh, third and final in our series of Marvel, Disava- of Marvel Disavowed toy-based comics. Oh, okay. After um, Micronauts, and then Rom, and now Kristar. So Kristar was an attempt by Marvel to get in on the burgeoning action figure craze in the early 80s by creating kind of a He-Man-like character that would have associated comic book marketing. 
Okay. Yeah, you can find some some of their commercials and stuff around the internet, and some of the toys are pretty cool, actually. But because so, but I'll sort of explain it after explaining the premise. All right. All right. So there's a fantasy world. The king dies. He's got two sons, and it's not clear who should get the crown. So it's time to fight. Okay. Yeah, one prince allies himself with a good wizard, and he and all of his buddies are turned to crystal to become better fighters. Meanwhile, the other prince goes evil, and he and all his buddies are turned to lava men, and then it's time to fight. Okay. Yeah, so the good guy action figures are pretty cool because they're made out of this cle- out of this clear plastic that makes them look like crystals. And there's this crystal drag, like there's this one guy that rides a uh, crystal dragon that like I've actually kind of taken a gander through eBay to see if there's ones for sale that I can get. <laughs> uh, all right. But despite their coolness, it's generally accepted that the toy line failed because while they did have a comic book series, like this uh, toy series is co-created by Marvel. But because they didn't have a cartoon show, it was doomed for failure. Ah, uh, yes. That's where you get your money from, is that cartoon. Or at least that's where you kind of get people to know what your, that your cartoon exists and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Uh, I thought it's basically a cartoon advertises for the toy. So that way the toy succeeds when you have a successful cartoon. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, to- the man, I don't want to get too far into, into 80s advertising uh, uh, stories or whatever. But, all right, all right. but those, those cartoons were just commercials for toys. That's why, that's why gov- the government required that they put those after these messages, we'll be right back, mess- uh, things in between commercials for, for children's cartoons so you wouldn't so that the show wouldn't just seamlessly blend in with the commercials. Like that's a fact. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Anyhow, so there's this dude Kristar and his bikini clad girlfriend Ika, and they have a magical mishap that sends them tumbling through dimensions into the Sanctum Sanctorum of Doctor Strange. Eventually uh the rest of the crystal guys follow, as do the lava guys. And this leads to a great big old fight that endangers a lot of Doctor Strange's stuff because it's all like wood furniture and books, and that that's all super flammable. And the bad guys are made out of freaking lava. <laughs> Strange uses the winds of Watum to throw all the fire from the lava guys into the fireplace, and eventually, the Kristar's uh, bumbling wizard character reveals a magic item that. Uh, is able to easily send everybody home, but he didn't think of it because no one asked him about it, because that's how these comic book goes. Right. Yeah, and that's basically it. It's just sort of a little mini, it's just sort of a little mini adventure with a lot of sort of in-universe Kristar stuff that no one's super duper interested in. Yeah. I'm never clear on whether these crossovers are supposed to get Doctor Strange fans to read comic, to read toy comics, or to get toy comic fans to read Doctor Strange, you know? Because he crosses over with all of them. Don't know. I'm going to go with I don't know. You guys are okay. The Doctor Strange is established at this point. That's that's kind of a fact. Oh, yeah, yeah. 20 years in for Doctor Strange. Yeah, so I'm guessing that they're trying to get some crossover between the Doctor Strange crowd and whatever product they're trying to sell. I'd assume so, too. But yeah. part of me is also also just knows that like Doctor Strange also has a... Fra- has a worrying level of popularity throughout most of his comic book existence. You know? <laughs> like, he could always be more popular. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. He's in, he's enjoying a fair amount of popularity right now. 
that yeah no this is I, again not to get too out of the timeline but i feel like we're at a super high point for dr strange stuff oh yeah but like, more on that later like a couple of years yeah like two three years it'll be that's gonna be a really good time on the podcast i gotta say that <laughs> but let's go to uh dr strange let's go back to solo strange enough of these crossovers yeah, enough of these crossovers. Yeah, let's go to Doctor Strange 57 from February 1983. Gather my disciples before me. Roger Stern writer, Kevin Nowlin guest penciler, Terry Austin inker, Jim Novak letterer, Bob Sharon colorist, Alan Milgram editor, Jim Shooter maitre d'. So uh, Stephen Strange and Morgana Blessing, his sort of new squeeze, are eating lunch at like a, you know, at a bistro kind of place. When some freaking dude shows up and starts blowing up Doctor Strange's spot about being master of the mystic arts, like, hey man, you're Doctor Strange, you're uh, you're the master of the mystic arts, right? You're a cool guy. Uh, Strange magics him up into constantly eating, and which covers him as he and Morgana uh, leave. After they split up, Doc uh, Doc heads back to the Sanctum Sanctorum and finds it mobbed by people. It turns out that word has gotten around that Clea is gone and that Strange needs a new disciple. We uh, see people... What? Oh, okay. I mean, you know, you gotta have a disciple, guys, and people are like, whoa, Mystic Master Doctor Strange? I gotta get me some of that. Sure. What, you don't You don't want to be the disciple of Doctor Strange? I mean, I, that, would be, that would be pretty rad. It's just like, I don't know, I wouldn't go crowding around the Sanctum Sanctorum for this kind of thing. Uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> So we see people all around the world talking about Doctor Strange's need of a new disciple. Um, there's some random guys in a bar in the South Pacific talking about it, which is, of course, the way uh, Doctor Strange himself learned about the Ancient One, which is kind of funny. And uh, even a aged uh, Genghis in the Himalayas is telling people who come to him seeking wisdom to go back to America and check out Doctor Strange. <laughs> that really seems kind of like a shove-off of, like... Uh, I don't really want to deal with you. Go talk to Doctor Strange. Yeah, H. H. Genghis is a jerk, man. <laughs> he's a jerk and he's senile. So like, he's like, look, you came all the way to mountainous Tibet to talk to me, man. You gotta go back to the city. Uh, there's no, work, man. Don't worry about there's, it. There's no wisdom for you here, buddy. <laughs> Even Doctor Doom hears about the need for discipleship. He decides not to pursue it, not to pursue the opportunity. But don't worry, because Strange and, Do- and, and Doom will eventually team up for a super awesome adventure, but that's about six years of comics out. Right. Yeah, man. The triumph and the torment, it's so good. Meanwhile, uh, our old buddy James Mandarin, who we'll recall is the guy who broke into the Sanctum Sanctorum and previously tried to become Doctor Strange's disciple by slitting his own throat in Doctor Strange's like uh, foyer. He breaks into the sanctum and gets the crap kicked out of him by by Wong, and then gets the bums rush out the front door. <laughs> Wong pops out of a room, just like Kia. <laughs> well, he's, he's an intruder, man. <laughs> Listen, if there was someone, if someone, if you saw someone breaking into your house, it wasn't just an intruder, but an intruder who has previously tried to kill himself in your house, and then. Uh, Made a deal with a devil that sucked your boss and his girlfriend to literal hell before. I feel like you would be, um, you'd react quickly. Would I? <laughs> would I pop out of a side room shouting "Kia"? Absolutely, I would. I mean, I've seen you do that, just sort of as part of your part, part, 
part of the day, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll mention that this episode takes place after the time when we last saw James Mandarin in Marvel Fanfare 8, which we read eight episodes ago, but comes out in a couple months from when this comic came out, because timelines are spooky! <laughs> Uh, Strange is also confronted by Jemaine uh, Z- uh, Zardoz, a lady in a ridiculous hat, who we met in that same episode of the podcast when we literally went through hell a second time, this time with the X-Men. Uh, she says that her mother, green-skinned lady with ram's horns, Margali, is the Sorceress Supreme, and that entitles her to be Strange's disciple. He says, no dice. Instead, he has business manager Sarah Wolf place an ad in the paper saying that everyone who wants to be Doctor Strange's disciple should come to the Bottom End Club in New York City to uh, where there will be like a contest or something to, to determine the disciple. Though in the end, in sort of this crowded room with a whole bunch of people, Doctor Strange is like, hey, uh, I don't need a disciple. Everybody go home. Totally legit. Yeah, Jermaine is enraged, and she tries to wizard fight him, but he smacks her down with an arm wave. And at this point, Margali herself shows up, and to avoid a large-scale pro- and, and to avoid large-scale property damage, Strange teleports the two of them, plus the crowd and the interior fixtures of the club, including tables, curtains, and windows, to an alternate realm for safer wizard fighting. Uh, after a pretty sweet, like long-term wizard fight. Um, it looks like Margali has won, and she goes over to finish Doctor Strange off when he grabs her magic wand and exercises its power from Margali. This causes her to shift from a giant green lady with boss horns to, like, an older, stereotypical uh, Romany woman, <laughs> like, with a traditional red bandana and a lot of jewelry and things like that, like what she's sort of... Your iconic idea of, like, a, a gypsy lady, I guess? Yeah, totally. She, uh, she, she cries and she thanks Doctor Strange for saving her from the control of the magic of the evil, of the evil, of the evil wand. So good times. Strange then returns everybody to the concert hall, you know, and of course brainwashes them to forget everything, except that Doctor Strange doesn't need any new followers. Uh, Jermaine's also freed from the spell of the wand, and the mother and daughter embrace as Strange snaps the magic item in two. All is well, but now there's one big question. Who started all this? Who did start all this? Hey, let's find out in Doctor Strange 58 from April 1983. At Loose Ends. Roger Stern writer, Dan Green penciler, Terry Austin inker, Jim Novak letterer, Bob Sharon colorist, Alan Milgram editor, Jim Shooter, Hori host. <laughs> so this one, as its name sort of um, implies, is kind of a random stuff and flashbacks episode. Like the, the cliffhanger from last issue is immediately resolved because it's aged Genghis that did it. Of course he, it is. He's just out there being like old and senile and like spilling his business, spilling Dr. Strange's business in these streets, which Dr. Strange doesn't appreciate. <laughs> so he kind of like, says to Genghis, like, hey, man, could you not tell everybody that I need a disciple? And Genghis is like, oh, come on. You, you, you might if you want to. And he's like, no, don't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, dude, you seem lonely. You need a disciple or something. I don't know. And 
Doctor Strange is like, oh, but, you know, I started dating this new lady, and I don't know if I want to actually do magic stuff with her. Like, just be cool, Genghis. And Genghis is like, all right, if you twist my arm, I will be cool. <laughs> um, Doctor Strange also uh, sends Jemaine and Margali on their way as they thank him profusely for their help for demagicking them. And then, with maximum trippiness, Doctor Strange opens the Orvago motto and scans for trouble. There's one part where you see his scanning head, and it looks like he's just his head's been peeled like an orange, which is really crazy. It's pretty cool looking. Just like his face right. is just this spiral slice. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. We cut to the Dark Dimension, where Clea is whipping the leaders of her rebellion against Umar into shape. They're like, oh, we don't want to attack, whatever. And Clay is like, we're going to get out there and we're going to fight. There's actually a pretty similar scene to this in the new Star Wars movie, Drew, but that's all I'll say. Thank you for not saying any more. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have to start saying very profane things. Indeed. Meanwhile, Umar wonders what's happened to Dormammu. FYI, he's been at least temporarily destroyed in the curse of his attempt to conquer the world by teaming up with Hitler in the past. Uh-huh. And she consults a seer and is warned that her own flesh and blood will rise against her. Now, Clea doesn't know that she's Umar's daughter, but Umar does know and immediately makes the connection. But more on that later. Uh-huh. Back at the Sanctum Sanctorum, Doctor Strange is trying to ferret out like what the deal with the Dweller in the Darkness is. Who is that evil puppet master bad guy? He fought without knowing it back in episode 17 of the podcast. Right. But he's interrupted by Wong because it's time to spar. Shirts yeah, are, time. yeah, totally. Shirts are removed and the dude fight begins. This section is for the ladies. Which Sarah Wolf can attest to as she gazes upon Wong's sweet kung fu moves. She actually uh, calls Wong a regular Jackie Chan, which seems pretty hip for 1983, to be honest. Was, um, was Jackie Chan operating back? Yeah, I guess he was. Yeah, I think that's when he made all those, like, Drunken Master movies and stuff. Oh, right? yeah, that's right, that's right. But, like, you know, but J- J- he, he doesn't get wide, widespread American appeal until, like, the 90s or something, you know? So, yeah. like, Rumble in the Bronx is the first American Jackie Chan movie that I can remember, and that's in, like, 1995. So, Sarah Wolf, very hip. I think we can all agree. Clearly. But there's no time for eye candy because Sarah has a problem. So, okay... Remember way back when we first met Sarah Wolf and her old boyfriend had was killed by these Native American demons called Eye Killers? It was like episode 18 of the podcast? Yeah. So that guy's lawyer needs to talk to Sarah about his estate or something like that. She's nervous about it and wants Doctor Strange to come with her. He agrees. Though first he calls Morgana to cancel their date that night. Because Doctor Strange is trying to be a better boyfriend this time around. Good for him. Yeah. At the uh, law offices, which are located in the Dakota apartments where Rosemary's Baby was filmed, they meet the lawyer, Harry Cagle. All seems well until Doctor Strange realizes the lawyer has no shadow. Vampire! Oh, is this all the vampire stuff? So, there's a brief fight until Doc can mind scan the lawyer. And... Then the fight ends. The vampire reintroduces himself. He's Hannibal King, and he needs help. Help taking down a powerful monster once and for all. A monster named 
Dracula. What? Yeah, what? buddy. What? Then that's it for the first half. And some right. pretty good issues so far. I think there were some decent team ups, like with the thi- not so much with the thing, but like the, uh, the Serpent Crown one that was pretty good. And yeah, with all that this, snake action. Yeah, a lot of snake hat action, which is always fun. And uh, this upcoming battle against Dracula, oh man, I'm super excited for it. So let's take a quick break, and we'll get uh, a little further into this scheme against Dracula, and then we'll dive into red-hot defenders action for the very last time. See you then!